That's 1 Peter chapter 1, leaving off from last week uh, in verse 22. And we're going to read uh, from there to chapter 2, verse 3. So we're going to cross, cross chapters here. So let's stand and read the Word of God. So beginning in verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is a word which was preached to you. Therefore, having put us, or sorry, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. As uh, we come into your word this uh, morning, Lord, we just we just are reminded of how um, you written these words down in this book for us to understand how to live out the Christian life and they, they've impacted us so greatly uh, week by week as we've been studying through different books of the Bible and different verses and different chapters Lord and we're just grateful for the, the truth that you revealed to us because we know we're not wired to, to understand your ways and to, to gravitate towards your way of living by nature we need, we need regeneration we need your Holy Spirit and your guidance to be able to live out this life because we would just by nature be selfish and always look out for our own interests. And you have a lot to say to us this morning. We've only going to cover a few verses, but they're very impactful and very rich in meaning. And, uh, you know, different pastors approach this different ways depending on what points they want to bring out. And I just pray that uh, the points that you've helped me see this week will be, will be come forward in a very concise way and and will impact the people's lives in our church this morning as we work together and growing as a family. So we look forward to our time together. In Christ's name, amen. reminder, let's just uh, talk briefly about what we covered last week so we can transition properly into this, this morning's message. You remember at the heart of Peter's message last week was a deep concern for how you and I conduct ourselves as Christians in this world. Basically the message was how you and I live as Christians matters to God. And from Peter's perspective, it wasn't enough for you and I just to bank in our salvation and bank in the, the knowledge that we're forgiven and to look forward to this hope of heaven he promised us. He wanted us to understand with this great privilege of being part of the people of God came great responsibility. And there was a way to conduct ourselves as Christians in this lifetime that mattered. And his main, his main um, verse, I think, that he was really focusing on was in 14 through 16. We were to be holy in all our behavior like God was holy. So we were to model ourselves after God in terms of our character and who we are as people. Now Peter, now transitioning to verse 22, continues with this theme and he, he brings forward an area of life in which he wants us to conduct ourselves. 
How are we to be holy like Him? What's one area we're to be holy in? Well, how we treat one another within the Christian community. How you and I relate to one another in the body of Christ. Look at verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently one another from the heart. Now Peter's use of the phrase, in obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls, was just a simple way of reminding these Christians and reminding you and I that a genuine conversion has taken place in our lives. Right? He's just saying, since you have been saved, since you've responded to the gospel favorably, I want you to consider this thing. And the thing that he wanted them to know was how to love one another. But the key I want we to focus on first is this word fervently. Fervently love one another. In the Greek language, and this is not hard for you to look up, if you have a, a map called Accordance, you can find any Greek word dictionary or any Greek definition you want, so you don't have to go to theological seminary to learn this stuff. You can just use that program. But the word fervently in Greek means intensely. So he's saying intensely love one another. Now, it's the same word used in Acts 12.5. Do you remember the scene? Um, what's happened is King Herod has just martyred one of the apostles, uh, James, the brother of John. And Peter's now in prison. He's next on death row. It's, ready. it's his turn for his head to get chopped off. And so he's in, he's in jail waiting for his turn. And the, the brothers and sisters in the church community in Jerusalem at that time get together and they have this huge prayer vigil, vigil for Peter in order for his release. And it actually says there that the church was fervently praying for Peter. So this gives you an idea of the intensity. You have a brother or sister. Imagine one of you guys in jail, and we know you're going to be beheaded in the next one or two days. And we get together to pray for you. You can imagine the emotion and the intensity that goes behind praying for this situation. And as you know, he was released in that time. But it's also used as a physiological term, meaning to stretch a muscle to its furthest limit. Or to stretch a muscle to its furthest capacity. Now you think of a racehorse in the Kentucky Derby in slow motion. You can see every muscle in every part of their, of their body just straining as they go towards the finish line. And you can see their labored breathing and so on. So it gives you this huge picture. But if you were my mom, it would remind you of the first time she ever saw me in a powerlifting competition back in the day. You see, my friends and my dad and different people would come to watch me compete. And I competed for about eight years. My mom never came to one. But one day she came to one competition, and at the very end of the day I said, So mom, what do you think? And she goes, I'm never coming back ever again. And I'm like, why? She goes, Andrew, I couldn't stand watching you because everything... She goes, I, when I was watching you, I thought that everything on your inside was going to end up on the outside. <laughs> that's the strain, that's the stretch and the capacity that God is asking of us here and what Peter's saying. He says, I want you to stretch in your love for one another. I want you to put in huge effort. I want you to go the distance and be pushed to the limit in how you love. This often means then, this, this is not always going to be easy. <laughs> because it's going to require a choice. A choice. It's nice when our emotions line up with our desire to love one another. Isn't it great when you want to love and then you go and do it? Doesn't it feel good when you accomplish the task? But often it doesn't. Often there's times where we're asked to love or we can see opportunities to love and we actually maybe don't want to. We don't want to. And so it requires the exercise of choice and we have to stretch and strain and go to huge efforts to fulfilling God's command. 
And again, this is not always going to be easy because if you're like me, it's not my default. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, my default isn't to love you just naturally on my own accord. That's not my default. My default is to sleep, to make my life comfortable, to have a nicer meal, to watch more YouTube videos of whatever I'm interested in. Like That's my natural desire. And if you're like me, you probably can relate to this. So our, our default is not that. So this means then that it requires a choice for me to get off my butt and actually go and love you the proper way needed, the way that Paul, Peter's talking to you. And I think uh, God's been testing me in this uh, over the last uh, month especially, um, especially the last couple of weeks, because he's actually challenging me even in my own marriage. So uh, Jacob, for whatever reason, who's been a wonderful sleeper, is not sleeping very well anymore. He gets up once a night without fail, and he wakes up screaming or crying. And Jacob is pretty awesome because usually he lets you know who he wants to come snuggle him. So when I and for whatever reason, I'm always the first one to wake up to Jacob's voice, and he sleeps right through it. I, at least she pretends to sleep right through it. <laughs> This sermon is for her if, she's, if this means anything. <laughs> but what happens is, I sit there and I listen to his cries, and secretly, my default is like, please, Jacob, call out mommy's name. Please call out mommy's name. Because why? Because I want, I'm off the hook if he calls for mommy, I don't have to go downstairs. But Janice, even when he calls his, even when she does, he does call her name, still doesn't wake up. So I would say, and this is this, is, and so what God does in those moments, He actually reminds me of my role as a husband. He reminds me of my role as a scripture. He, he reminds me of self, His essence of love as self-sacrificial. And so He's like, it doesn't matter, Andrew, whether you're, He calls your wife's name or not. If you're the first one to wake, go respond. And so for two weeks, I've basically been getting up virtually every single time with Jacob to give him what he needs and go back to bed. But you see, that's a choice. That's not what I want to do. That's not what I want to do. That's what I, but I know that love requires me to be self-sacrificial and to put Janice's and Jacob's needs ahead of my own. But I get challenged every single night and uh, virtually every single night from Jacob. But that's what Peter's calling us to. And the essence of this, of course, this kind of love, then is that you put one, uh, someone else's interests above your own. And Philippians 2, chapter 1, speaks of this in a strong way. Paul says this, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any, any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And again, I know this from experience, like not only is it hard for me sometimes to fulfill what Peter's commanding here and putting other people above my, my own interests, or putting their interests above my own, I should say, but I mean, I know it's been the same for you towards us. I'm sure when we went to move house, then we made that phone call saying, would you come and help? Some people were like, oh, man, I sure could be doing other things, but you show up and move house. When it comes to other areas of, of service in the church, I'm sure you'd rather be doing other things, but again, you show up and you commit because of your love for us. 
And this is again what Peter's talking about. A love that will require choice. A love that will require you to be stretched to your furthest capacity and to your limit. But I want to say one more thing about this love. I want you to notice where this love is directed. Where is this love directed? It says here in verse 22, Fervently love one another. Love one another from the heart. I think this is really important. Um, and those of you who were around a couple years ago and heard this sermon, so this is not unfamiliar to you, but for those of you who knew, this might sort of rock your mindset towards the Christian community you're used to. But our churches, as a general statement, across North America, have made it a huge mission to serve those outside the church community. They make, we, make, we hear about churches that are always in the community, always in the community, always in the community, serving, 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 serving. I'm not saying those are wrong things to do, and I see there is a place for the church in those things. However, in the scriptures, the number one emphasis on love is inside the church community. In the scriptures, the number one emphasis is always in-house, not out-house. Okay? Listen to this in James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Watch this. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, he won't be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give him what, they, what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. This is not your biological brother and sister. <laughs> okay? If you do the word study, it's clear that brother and sister is always used in reference to the Christian community. I'll give you one more. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. There's a famine going on in Jerusalem, and Paul decides to collect money from all the churches around Europe to bring to Jerusalem. Look at what he does with the money. Now, at the time some prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. At this time, or, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the leaf of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas to all the elders. Now, I don't want to be graphic here, but I'm going to be graphic because you need to get the point. Let me ask you the question. If there's a famine in all of Judea, would there be non-Christians and Christians both hungry in those circumstances? Yeah. Do you think the apostles or the disciples, when they went to have money, had to walk by people on the streets that they noticed were hungry? Did they stop and give them the money? No. They went straight to the Christian community. Right? It's really, I mean, let's just be honest. That's how graphic it is. I'll give you two more passages. I'm not, we're not going to go on. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, talks about the emphasis on the community. And Matthew, in Matthew, I think it's 25, verse 34 to 40, talks about the emphasis on community. We start loving within our community. If we want to help outside the community, that is fine. And, but, there's, but again, there's biblical principles and guidelines on how to help outside the community. We, just because we see a need doesn't mean we should necessarily just go rush off and do it. There's a great book called When, when Helping Hurts. It's a whole book about how Christian communities have gone to try to save the world with all their poverty and stuff and only made it worse for them in their countries and their situations. It's a fantastic book. I recommend reading it. So here we go. Back to our text. 
Peter is called, of course, these believers to a radical type of love, right? They're to love one another where they're forced to go to the limit and stretch to the furthest capacity. The question then that might arise amongst these people would be, well, why should I, Peter? Why should I? Like, what difference does it make? Well, Peter answers that question in verse 23 forward. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Notice that the reason why these men and women were to love one another and why he calls us to do the same was because of the spiritual rebirth that has taken place in their lives and in our lives. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. So the reason for loving this way was because you've been born with a new purpose. Christ has created a new purpose in you through this new regeneration. Now I don't want you to know I don't want you to miss there, therefore, how this spiritual rebirth came about though. The emphasis here is on the Word of God. He says, You were born again, not of seed which is imperishable, but or perishable but imperishable, through the living Word of God. So obviously, we here we learn something about how salvation works. This spiritual birth came about, of course, through faith in Jesus Christ and, his, and regeneration through the Holy Spirit, which was given to you at, con- at conversion. But the agent, the agent by which this regeneration comes about is through the gospel message, through the truth in Scripture. Now, this is extremely important for us, church, when it comes to evangelism and leading people to Christ. Because what we learn from Peter here is it's not ultimately our arguments or our attempted logic that will bring new life to an unbeliever, but the powerful spoken word of the gospel message, the gospel truth. I want something happened to me last week to, that was perfect timing to illustrate this. Remember I asked you to pray for that woman that I've been talking to so I was going to share the gospel with about on two Sundays ago. We had this, we had, we've had one or two, or we've had two phone call conversations since uh, that Sunday, and we've spoken a few times by text message. When I fielded her questions, I began the first hour of our conversation, like you know, uh, speaking using logic and using like reason and, and uh, different arguments to defend Christianity and show her why Christianity was true. She would agree with virtually every statement I made. And so I thought I was making grounds with her. Um, at the end of the whole thing, uh, that, that conversation ended and we moved on. A few days later, I had another conversation. And when she was speaking, I could tell that she picked up on nothing that I'd, I'd thrown down the previous conversation. She didn't, when I talked about the gospel and Christianity, she had missed the main points of what I was trying to do through my reason, my logic, and my arguments. And I thought, you know what? I, and, you know, like in my head, I'm going, enough's enough. I've got to pull out the Bible. So I said, do you have a Bible? She says, yes, I do. Uh, this girl had given her one. I said, go open it. She didn't know any of the books of the Bible or what, the, what any verses meant. So most of my time was helping her just navigate the scriptures. We went from verse to verse to verse. And at the end of the, everything, she understood what she needed to do. Because she was going down all these paths about what, who God was, what it required to be accepted by her. But the scriptures, when she would read them, contradicted everything she believed. And she was forced to come to a reality of truth. So in 30 minutes of going through the Bible, I accomplished what I was hoping to do in the first hour using my own arguments and logic. 
You see, has she, I don't know if she's received the Lord or not, but she knows the gospel message. Because the, the word of God was preached. And if we don't preach the word of God to people, something other than genuine conversion will take place. If we don't preach truth, something other than genuine conversion will take place. Because they'll have a version of Christianity that is not true. Or it's lo- it sounds logical or reasonable, but there's no passages to back it. There's no truth to back it. And so they'll have this version of Christianity that they think is right. And it won't be. When I was thinking about this, I have personally never... Well, yeah. In terms of the physical Bible being open. Let me, let me back up here. You, can, you don't have to have the Bible open to preach truth. If you preach truth, like using chapters and verses and words from God, that is truth. And they, they, you don't have to have a scriptures in front of you to save someone. They can respond through, through the message of your words as long as you're coming from the scriptures. However, however think of, when you think of this, it's very interesting. I have personally never led anyone to Christ in my life without the Bible open. Never once. Every single person I've helped come to Christ, the actual physical Bible was open and we read something at some point. Because again, like Hebrews 4 says, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword and that divides bone and marrow and deep to the joints. So if we want to lead people to Christ, we have to preach the truth of the gospel, which means you have to know the truth of the gospel and know the verses and know where they come from. You can't have your own version of it. It has to be right from the Bible. And, we, and yet, even encourage you to open the scriptures and let them be, have a force to reckon with when they have to read those words. And that's what Peter's saying here. So let's not forget why Peter brought this whole thing up in the first place. The reason why he reminded them of the rebirth and the power of the Word of God to bring about this new transformed life was basically a way of providing them with incentive of how to love one another. Right? That's, that was what the four was for in verse 23. But Peter also understood that if they were going to health, have a healthy church family and they were to love one another the way he intended, that certain realities, certain spiritual disciplines were going to be required in the, each man and woman's lives if this was going to come true. If they were going to have success in terms of having a healthy church family, two things were going to be required of them. One, they, would have, they were going to have to take something off. And two, they were going to have to put something on. They were to take something off and put something on. So what were they to take off? Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. They were to put aside and renounce all sinful behavior. Look at 2.1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander... Actually, let's leave it there. (laughs) Yeah, they were to put those things off. Now, before I define what each of these words mean, I first want to tell you why I think Peter felt the need to instruct them in this area in the first place. Well, remember, these Christians were suffering. They were hurting. They were being rejected. Remember, in verse 6, it says they were distressed. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it tells us they were tested. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, it tells us that they were being tempted to conform conform to their former lusts, which they were saved from. Okay, so what happens to you and I, generally, when we're under stress? How does the love work in your own relationships when you're under stress? So when you're stressed in your home, how how do you treat your spouse? With more love or less love? 
when you're under, when you've been just rejected at work, or you've been like dejected, or you're suffering in some kind of way, are you likely to be more patient with your friends, more patient with your kids? <laughs> right? You're not. It takes some kind of level of peace for you to exercise love in a, in a more natural, easy way. So these Christians are under stress and under duress. And so likely, well not likely, I'm positive that they were actually doing, they were actually living out things like hypocrisy, envy, slander, and malice within their church communities. Because you don't instruct someone not to do something that they're not already doing, right? You only tell someone what to do if they're doing it wrong. So if they weren't guilty of these things, there's no point in bringing it up. It's a mute point for Peter. But Peter recognizes that these things are probably going on in the church. And it makes sense because of what they're under, which is deep stress. And you can relate to that. So what he's saying to these guys is, in order to fulfill the love of the community and love of the brethren, there's a role you have to play. Even spiritually reborn by imperishable seed. He's not denying they're Christians, but under stress, there's these things that want to creep up, that want to affect church community. And he wants to make sure that this fervent love is maintained and the onus was on them to watch their behavior. He didn't want anything to creep into the church that would affect their community. So what were these things? Malice. Malice in the scriptures is used as a general term to describe all wickedness in the Bible. It's just a general term to describe evil and wickedness. But typically it was used in the way of describing when someone had evil intentions towards someone to afflict harm. So you, 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 you intentionally went out of your way to inflict harm on somebody. And it was sins that would hurt or injure other people. They were to avoid these types of things. They were to avoid, avoid deceit. Now, the word deceit actually is interesting. In Greek, actually, literally means to bait. It's a fishing term, to bait or to fish hook someone. Well, think about what you do when you fish. What's bait for? It's to trick. It's for trickery or falsehood, right? You want to make that real fish, that, that fish you want to believe that your bait is actually something real and true so that you can catch it, right? So deceit then is when we are intentionally trick, tricksters or intentionally dishonest or we tend to try to bait people and we present falsehoods, falsehoods for personal gain, right? So when we're deceitful, we, we tell falsities, we... We are dishonest and everything. And the whole thing is for personal gain and to basically dupe the other person. So Peter says we are to strip off any tendency to set people up and harm them in these ways. How about hypocrisy? Well, interestingly enough, just like uh, the word deceit when it refers to something different with, uh, with fishing, hypocrisy actually was used about those in the acting community. Uh, actors who wore masks in their plays, they were actually called hypocrites. Why? Because when you have a mask, you're trying to present to the world someone that you're not. You're an impersonator. And Peter is saying this, don't be like this hypocrite. Don't be like this actor who wears a mask. Don't, be imp don't impersonate one person when you're not actually that person. Like, be genuine and be true. So don't try to give this outward appearance of righteousness when inside there's only evil and, uh, and intentions in your heart. So don't be a faker. Envy. Well, whenever we're envious, basically that's when we resent someone because they have something that we don't, right? Envy is basically like jealousy. 
And envy is a destroyer of community because it's the opposite of thankfulness. It's the opposite of thankfulness. See, often we become envious when something good happens to someone else that we don't receive, and so we get jealous because we want that. So instead of being grateful for what they've received and the blessings they've received from God and their own lives, we actually become jealous and, and bitter. And so envy leads to conflict in churches, it leads to grudges in churches, and it leads to bitterness in churches. And here's the thing, in every family, whether the biological family or the spiritual family, times of promotion and demotion occur. Every family has times of, right? Some person gets elevated because of something that happens in life, and that means by nature someone almost gets demoted because it didn't happen to them. And so, in any family, we have to be able to celebrate the successes of those in our families and not get jealous and envious. And that's what Peter's saying to us in the spiritual family. Be grateful for what happens in the church community when people get blessed or get promoted in ways that you don't. Finally, slander. What does slander mean? Well, slander basically means to defame one's character. This is any speech that seeks to harm one's status or reputation. It means that um, things like gossip and backbiting would be part of this, this kind of speech. And of course, slander always occurs when the person's not there. <laughs> when they're not there. And this is, just a little, this is a little tip for you and how I've worked through gossip in my own life. These are two points I want to bring up. Not in my notes, they just came to me now. Uh, so this is the Holy Spirit's leading. These are two points on how I determine what gossip is. One, if you're going to say this thing about this person, is there going to be eventual confrontation with that person in opening up these areas? So if I go to someone, if I want to talk about Stuart behind his back, and I go to Denise or Jeff or someone to do so, here's a question. Am I eventually going to bring these things forward to Stuart? Because if I am, now it's not gossip. I'm working this through with my partner, so that I have wisdom in how to approach that person. I'm not seeking to defame their character. I might bring up poor character traits, but the reason I'm bringing them up is so that I can eventually confront the person. And this is, comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Chloe's people wrote to uh, Paul about what was going on in Corinth. Why, did she, why wasn't it gossip? Because she knew that Paul was going to write a letter and confront the Corinthian church. So if you're ever going to talk about someone behind their back, Make sure that you're, uh, you, it's, if it's for the purpose of trying to not defame them, but that you're going to bring it to their attention to help them work through an issue. And the second thing I ask, this is my own opinion on gossip and how I work through it is, would I, if what I'm about to say about that person, would I say the exact same thing about that person if they were standing in the room? If I would, if I would say the same and word the same if they, as if they were behind me, then I'll say it. If, I'm not, if they weren't there, I'm not going to say it. And that's the thing about gossip and slander. It occurs when the person is not there. Why? Because you know that it's supposed to not get back to them. And it's a way of putting them down to elevate yourself. And you can see now why all these things, envy, slander, hypocrisy, deceit, malice. Peter says, get rid of them in your church. That's up to you to do. You are to put these things aside. God doesn't put them aside. He's forgiven you at the cross, but now you have this flesh that wants to rise up in you, and your mind wants to go back to your old way of thinking, and you're saying, don't let that happen. You have control of this area, and you put that out of your life. Now, you can see why this is so important for us, church. I mean, think of this now. 
Like, uh, just like, just take an, like a, uh, a picture in your head. Like, let's say, take, let's take one of you and put them up in church right here. And let's make two meters of space between you and me, you, like you here and me here. Make two meters of space between us. If I, in terms of embracing you, or embracing our relationship, or putting further distance, if I gossip about you, am I drawing you closer? If you find out, am I, draw, or am I pushing you off the stage? If I'm envious of you, am I going to draw us closer in relationship, or am I going to push you farther away off the stage? If I'm a hypocrite towards you, or you're hypocritical towards me, am I going to draw closer in my love for you, or are we going to push you off the stage? You know the answers to all these things, right? You can see how these things destroy. They destroy. And so Peter's saying, listen church, strip off these things. If you want to have a good, healthy, spiritual family, get rid of all this in your lives. Okay, so they're to take off these things. What were they to put on? They were to put on this deep, insatiable hunger for the Word of God. Look at verse two, chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Again, in Greek, the word to long for basically means to have a strong desire or craving for something. But even if you didn't know that, it'd be obvious that that's what that word meant by the illustration that Peter uses. Long for the word like a baby longs for the mother's milk. Now, thankfully, Evie's given me lots of um, ammunition in this. And it's it's just the natural cycle of life, but... Olivia cries frequently in our church service. She doesn't want a blanket. She doesn't want nice shoes. She doesn't even want a hug. She's already being hugged by his mom. What she's saying is, Mom, I'm hungry. And nothing will do except food. Your milk. That's it. And every time Evie feeds her, she stops. Every time. That's all it takes. Not hugs, not blankets, not songs. And she's a good singer, as you know. None of that. It's purely feed me mom, feed me mom, feed me mom. I want that. That's my craving. That's my passion. And Peter says this. You as a Christian, me as a Christian, are to long for the word of God the same way a baby wants milk. And the reason is, is because of what it produces in us. Milk produces growth in a child, physically. Without milk, they become malnutritioned. And all of us know, when we look at malnutrition kids, what's the first thing that goes through your head? You feel sorry for them. (laughs) Don't you? You want to rescue them. What happens when we don't crave the Word of God? We We become malnutritioned spiritually. We become malnutritioned spiritually. And when we look at people's lives and they're, and they're struggling, we, we, we're like, oh man, I would just love you to become full and fulfilled. And I want you to like grow. There's a way to receive, to get rid of this malnourishment, but you have to long for this word of God. You have to spend time. You have to like study. You have to read. You have to hunger for the scriptures in order to, re, to, to spiritually grow, to mature. And here's why again, church. You see, remember last week's sermon? The battle for our Christians' maturity is, not, is won or lost in the mind. Remember what we said in, in chapter 1, verse 13? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Before you can change your behavior, you have to fix your head. 
And because we're pre-wired to the world and we, and we have this flesh that wants to rise up against God's ways, it's not natural for us. So if we don't spend time hungering for the Word and letting the, the, the Word of God transform our minds in the way we think, it won't only impact our own personal walk with God, it'll impact our Christian community. Why would that be? Well, think about it. If you go to make choices in dealing with one another, and you don't know God's way of making those choices and what He asks you to do in certain situations, you'll go back to your own patterns and your own defaults for how to communicate these things and to deal with conflicts and so on and so forth. So what happens? We end up with envy, backbiting, malice, and all these things because we're, we're not doing what God wants, but we think it is because it's just because we're Christians doesn't mean we know how to apply the truth to our lives. So again, we have to study, read, spend time in the Word of God so that we know God's ways to handle situations. So the more mature we come, the more easier it is to obey Peter's commands to fervently one, love one another because we know what that entails. You see, just like attending a music concert doesn't make you a great piano player, neither does attending church once a week to make you a strong Christian. You can love music and go to every concert and pay them money every week. You're not going to get any better at piano or, 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 or guitar unless you go after the concert and spend hours practicing yourself. You can't come here and expect me to feed you the Word of God and expect that you're going to grow in a, in a mature way to fullness of, your fullness of salvation. There's so much work for us to be done because all of us have character issues that need shaping and rewiring. And so that takes time, it takes effort, it takes work. So you and I need to get at it and we need to work. And we have to have a hunger for the Word of God so that our community can function the way God wants us to, which is to fervently one another, love one another from the heart. I've got four lessons for you. Three have to do with the subject of having a healthy church family. So if you look at the PowerPoint, in order for Genesis House to have a healthy church family, what must we do? One, you need to stretch in our efforts to love one another. We need to stretch in our efforts to love one another. Your emotions won't always line up with your desire to love. Won't always. But ultimately, your love for God will motivate you to still serve your community and one another. That will require a choice in many instances, but it also requires thought and time. You have to think about how to serve, how to love, and think about the time in terms of, well, time in terms of preparing for it and also to invest in it. But we need to stretch our inner efforts to love, just like a muscle stretching to its fullest capacity. Second, we need to resist all sinful behavior in our lives. This list of malice and so on and so forth this list is on us. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit. That's not God's job to put it away. It's our job to put it away. So we are to resist all things that will destroy our community. We are to resist gossiping about one another. 
being slanderous, or to resist having any wicked thoughts to, about, towards one another and wanting to hurt one another. We have to be not hypocrites. We're not to like present one thing in terms of righteousness to our community, but then really in their hearts be like, like have evil intent towards it or being like two-faced in the way we approach our, our Christian community. We, we're, to, we're to not be deceitful to one another, not be false and all these types of things. It's on us to resist these temptations. Finally, to have an effective, healthy community, we need to hunger for the Word of God. We have to pursue the Word of God. If you're dissatisfied right now with your spiritual walk, if you're in a place of dissatisfaction, Peter has practical instruction here. He says, you go hunger for it and you long for it because if you go and spend time on it and make this a discipline in your life, you will be transformed in your mind and if you're transformed in your mind, you'll be transformed in the way you behave. It'll change the way you function in Christian community. And finally, a side lesson on the, the, not related to this. But fourth, for effective evangelism to take place, the word of God must be preached. If we want to bring people to Christ, we have to preach the word of God. And I forget who taught me this one-liner, but it was really good. Um, if the word of God is not preached, something other than Christian conversion will take place. Now, this is scary for us in our culture. Because our culture says what? How dare you judge me? How dare you judge me? But what is the, what is the gospel challenge? The, the gospel challenge is that very belief system. Because God has already judged sin. And so that person is actually under God's judgment. <laughs> and we have to tell the person we're talking to that the way they're living is not right not right and it means we have to call out sin in their lives but it's not so that we can like hurt them it's so that we can show them genuine love to say God has got, a, has got a means by which you can be safe from this so the gospel is very challenging in our Okotokian culture because everyone wants this, does them to leave them alone in terms of how they live their lives but the gospel says no I have to get involved with the way you're living and call out the sin and say you know what your sin does require judgment has been judged but there's a way in which you can be forgiven and a way in which you can be restored. So again, if we try to like, like, you know, finagle and pussyfoot around like this idea of calling these things out, something other than Christian conversion is gonna take place. And so they'll be claiming the name of God, claiming that they're Christians, but actually it's just a label. It's not genuine.